church, our scripture reading is from Mark 13, starting verse 14 this morning. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the readers understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. If the Lord has now cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, anyone, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Church, this is the word of God. Amen, church. Please go ahead and have a seat. Good morning to you all. Oh, I think we're still asleep this morning. Good morning to you all. All right. Whether you're a regular attender here at Harvest or a visitor with us or you're tuning in online, I want to welcome each and every single one of you here to Harvest this morning. Glad you're here. I am excited because after a bit of a break, we come back now to the book of Mark. It's been some weeks since we've looked at this. We've been working through this book, believe it or not, It's been over a year now that we have been working through this wonderful gospel, and we're getting close to finishing it. We've got the rest of chapter 13, then 14, 15, and 16. We're getting very close. But can I share something with you real fast? It's been a doozy of a week studying this passage. As Brother Scott was reading, you most likely picked up There are some heavy topics in our passage this morning, and I just want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that it's heavy. I want to acknowledge that um, I have been striving to be diligent to bring the truth of God's word to you this morning. God's word is powerful. God's word is rich, and sometimes God's word is heavy. But we're going to dive into these topics. Are you ready? All right, somebody's ready. Good, good. Well, many of you probably have picked up on this. For many years now, there's been a popular genre of fiction that's called dystopian literature. And if you're unfamiliar with the term dystopian, that means relating or denoting an imagined state or society where there is great suffering or injustice. Dystopian is relating or denoting an imagined state or society where there is great suffering or injustice. Examples of this kind of literature would be The Hunger Games, 1984, The Running Man. Some of you remember that one. Divergent, The Maze Runner, and on and on and on the list goes. Those stories are all set in a time, sometimes on a global level, of great suffering or injustice. And typically that comes from an oppressive governing force or society, and they're forcing people to live a certain way in order to maintain what they would call is order. 
Interestingly enough, that's not original. The Bible talks about a time when great oppression and persecution will happen on a global scale. We call it the tribulation. You might be familiar with that term. Now, within the fictitious stories that are set in a dystopian society, there's often, uh, there often arises a person or a group of people who challenge the oppressive government or the oppressive ruling force, and of course, they eventually win the day throughout the story. And like those stories, the Bible presents us with a hero who does indeed reverse the effects of the oppressive state that's going to happen within the tribulation. But unlike those stories, the Bible presents the real hero. Not a fellow human being, but rather our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, the topic of our text centers around specifically the Great Tribulation. And I'm going to say up front, there is much controversy over this topic. Even among people in this very room, there are probably differing views on the end times and how they're going to play out and what's going to happen when. And I want to say up front, that's okay. This is an area that we can disagree on. The many views that surround the end times are not a matter of essential faith in Christ. So what I mean is that Christians can be Christians. We can all be Christians and yet have different views on the end times and what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. We can have different interpretations on that, and that's okay. We can disagree, and that's okay. I said several weeks ago when I spoke on Mark 13, 1 through 13, that when it comes to the end times, those are not core doctrinal issues apart from one thing. The one core truth I hope we all agree agree on as Christians is this. Jesus is coming back. We can disagree on the details, but Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, and he's going to ultimately defeat evil and set up his kingdom. All that being said, I want you to know I will approach this topic from a literal fourth, as a literal forthcoming event. I believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period that is coming at some point in the future. I believe that Jesus' words here in Mark 13 and elsewhere in Scripture verify that. And however, I know that there's some out there that might disagree with me, and that's okay. I just want to be upfront with how I'm approaching this. So the last time we were in Mark, we'd come to chapter 13, and this chapter is about Jesus' game plan for the end times. What we saw last time was that Jesus gave us his game plan. You may remember that. It was a plan for the end. Jesus lays out a strategy for his disciples and future followers to endure to the end. We talked about that several weeks ago. This morning, we're continuing that idea, or at least we're continuing this discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples, and we get to this period called the Great Tribulation, and I want to share three things about the Great Tribulation from our text. But before we get there, I do want to take a moment, because it's been a while since we've been in Mark, so I want to go back. I want to look at where we've been and how we got to where we are. So we've been, as I said, in Mark for over a year now, and at this point, we're over three-quarters of the way through. My hope, by the way, my hope, my plan, may not be God's plan, but my plan, is that we will finish the book of Mark on Easter Sunday. 
Lord willing. That's the plan. We'll see what God does. But in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, we dealt with this question. Who is Jesus? Mark gives evidence to the identity of Jesus mostly through his miracles. We saw Jesus heal people. We saw him cast out demons. We saw him feed thousands of people. And all of that was meant to show us who Jesus was or who Jesus is. And that section of Mark culminated in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. That's where Peter said, you are the Christ. And after that, we entered a new section. Jesus turned and traveled toward Jerusalem, knowing that his time for the cross was near. But along the way, he spent his time mostly with his disciples, and he was teaching them what it meant to be a disciple. The rest of chapter 8, chapters 9 and 10 deal with the question, what is a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? And then we came to chapter 11, and here we enter Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. Here he deals with the temple. He deals with the religious system. He deals with the religious leaders. We see Jesus answering questions that deal with his authority. The leaders came to him questioning his authority, and Jesus didn't directly answer that, but he did answer it by demonstrating his answer to them and teaching them. And that brings us all the way to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a subsection of Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. It's known as the Olivet Discourse, and here's where we find ourselves this morning. You may remember that chapter 13 began with Jesus saying these cryptic words about the destruction of the temple, and that led the disciples to ask Jesus, when are these things going to happen? What is the sign that they're going to happen? And in keeping with his character, Jesus doesn't answer them. Instead, he gives them warnings. And that's where we are, smack dab in the middle of chapter 13. Let's pick it up. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18 again. Jesus is speaking, and he says, But when, they, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So we're talking, ultimately, we're talking about the Great Tribulation this morning, and I want to share three things about the Great Tribulation. Here's your first, point number one, the event that will trigger the Great Tribulation. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the event that will trigger the Great Tribulation. This section of Scripture most likely has what we call a near and a far interpretation to it. Do you remember those words, near and far interpretation? Near and far descriptions of prophecy are very common in the Bible. Biblical prophecy, in biblical prophecy, there's often a near interpretation, meaning that the author is talking about an event that's going to happen very soon, but he's also talking about an event that's going to happen far in the future, and that's what we're seeing. So in our example, as an example of this, today, the author speaks of the abomination of desolation. We're going to get there. But the author speaks of this abomination of desolation. And this event results in Jews fleeing, specifically Judea. What Jesus is warning his disciples here is that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. That's the near interpretation. Jesus is speaking approximately 33 A.D., and the temple was destroyed, we know, in 70 A.D. 
So Jesus is speaking about a near event that's going to happen, possibly in the lives of the men that he's speaking to. But this event also has a far interpretation, excuse me, known as the Great Tribulation. Now let's deal with this term, the abomination of desolation. What is that all about? It's perhaps better translated the abomination that causes desolation. It is a reference to some event or perhaps even to a person of such abomination that desolation follows. Now this phrase, this is not the first time this phrase comes up. This phrase has come up three times in the book of Daniel. I've got those passages on the screen. You can follow along as I read. Daniel 9.27 reads, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. Again, in Daniel 11.31, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And again in Daniel 12.9-11, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set, there shall be 1,290 days. All of these references suggest some kind of event that's labeled an abomination. An abomination would be something that is a violation of something sacred. The Jews would have understood this word abomination as a violation of something sacred. It's something that's repugnant to God. So we can see this as some sort of blasphemous act. What is the blasphemous act? We have some thoughts. We're not 100% sure, but some sort of blasphemous act is going to happen. And because of that blasphemous act, Desolation comes. Devastation comes. Destruction is going to happen throughout the world. Now, many people believe that this prophecy from Daniel was in part fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem. That would have been the near interpretation. Daniel and Jesus here in Mark 13 probably are speaking of the events that happened around 66 to 70 AD with the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple. So that is likely the near interpretation of what Jesus is talking about here. But the far interpretation, let's look at verse 14 again. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now that sounds weird. If it sounds weird to you, good. It's supposed to sound weird. It's a little strange. In fact, in the Greek, the grammar isn't quite correct. The text seems to be referring to an abominable event, and that's in the gender there is neuter, but also the text is referring to a he, and the gender there is masculine, and those shouldn't go together. This appears to be a blasphemous act done by a person. I think that's the point that Mark's trying to get across here, and that would lead us to a specific individual that we would call the Antichrist. Now, who's he? Well, the Antichrist is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul writes this in verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, 
is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself over every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This man of lawlessness most likely is a reference to this individual we call the Antichrist, and this taking his seat in the temple of God is most likely what's referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. Many even concluded that's the blasphemous act that the Antichrist does, that what follows after that is the desolation. We're not 100% sure, but that's likely what's being explained there. And just to clarify this term Antichrist, you'll see this sometimes with a little a, Antichrist. That term refers to any person or any doctrine, really any belief that opposes Jesus. There's a spirit of Antichrist in our world today that opposes Jesus. But if you see the word capital A Antichrist, that is a specific reference to a specific person whom I believe, and I know many of you too, too, who is going to come, a leader of some kind who is going to come and oppose Christ and actually claim himself to be God. Now, there's a lot of debate on this. Like I've said, even in our church, there are different views on what this is and what we're talking about. about. Nevertheless, the events recorded in the book of Revelation, I believe, detail this end time that we call the tribulation and what the Antichrist is going to do. It's a warning. The book of Revelation is a warning of atrocious activity that's going to be started here at this abominable act, the abomination of desolation. Okay, take a breath. That was a lot of heavy, prophetic, Old and New Testament scripture. Thank you for staying with me on that. I know for a fact I did not answer all of your questions. I don't have all the answers. That's why. Secondly, if we tried to dive into every question that this brings up, we'd be here all morning. So we're not going to do that. We're going to move on. But just as a quick note, there's something else that probably stuck out in verse 14 that was a little confusing to you. It's that phrase, let the reader understand. And honestly, it's a bit difficult to determine how exactly is that being used here in the book of Mark. Well, Mark could have written that phrase, let the reader understand, writing to his original readers in Rome and giving them a clue to, hey, pay attention here because the times are getting desperate. Let me explain. Mark wrote approximately between 50 and 60 AD. So it's before Jerusalem had been destroyed. However, things in history were heating up. Persecution was heating up. So as Mark was writing this, it's possible he could have included that phrase, let the reader understand, to clue them in to what's happening around us and to clue them in that it's okay. Jesus warned us about these things. That could have been what Mark was trying to do. But there's another possibility too. There was a limited number of copies of any book of the Bible back then. You remember, everything was hand-copied. So likely, when the book of Mark came to the church at Rome, there was a reader who stood up and read it to the congregation. They didn't have enough copies to pass out to everybody. So it's possible that little phrase, let the reader understand, was actually assigned to the reader reading to the people. Why would he do that? Well, like I told you, verse 14 is oddly written. It's grammatically incorrect. So it could have been a clue to the person reading that this is not a mistake. Keep reading it. This is the way it's meant to be read. In fact, we have something like this in English. We have an abbreviated SIC, which, is a Latin, which it stands for a Latin phrase, sic erat scriptum. And it means to communicate that something has been written intentionally even though it may look wrong. 
So if you're ever reading a document and you see that little SIC and it's usually in brackets, that's telling you this was meant to be written this way even though it might look wrong. So that could be another reason why that little phrase is in there. I say all of that, all of that, to say this. The abomination of desolation is an event or person that triggers something that Jesus says the people should flee from. Many times, and speaking specifically of the destruction of Jerusalem, many times when an army came to besiege a fortified city, you'd run into the city because that's where the protection was. That's where the walls were. That's where you were safe. But Jesus says, not in this case. Don't do that because the city will fall. You get out. So this is really a warning at the time to the, to the disciples and the Jews and anyone living in Jerusalem. When you see this happening, get out because the city's going to fall. And indeed, we know from history when Rome came to destroy Jerusalem, it was safer to flee than stay in the city. So we see in the following verse, moving on from verse 14 now, there's an urgency with which the people are to flee. So let's pick it up at the latter half of verse 14. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back or take his cloak. So Jesus is saying, like I just said, when you see the abomination, when you see this happening, don't go get anything. They had exterior staircases that went to their roof. And he's saying, if you're on your roof, don't go down and go into your house to grab something. You just get down and get out. Just get out. That's the idea that he's communicating here. Get out of the city because you're not going to be safe in the city. And he continues and he says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it will not happen in winter. And we should understand it this way. If you're fleeing and someone within your family is pregnant and you have young children, that makes it a lot harder to flee. Jesus is communicating this is going to be tragic for those people who are trying to flee and they can't get away as quickly as they, can't, as they would like to because of these things. And he says the, the reference to winter, winter, of course, would suggest a problem with rain. There would be a lot of rain, a lot of swollen wadis, a lot of swollen rivers, so crossing those would make things difficult. So Jesus is actually saying pray that it doesn't happen in winter, which I find that interesting. Pray that your flight is not hampered. What do we see there? We see a picture of a gracious God in the midst of the turmoil that's to come. Pray that your flight is not hampered. Now, I've taken a lot of time to unpack this first section. I've given you a lot of information, and the question we should walk away from is this. What in the world should I do with all that? What should we do with all of that information? I mean, we didn't live in Jerusalem at the time of the fall. We didn't live there. It was destroyed. However, like I said, the far interpretation is the great tribulation and the atrocities that is surrounding that. So here's what we take away with this. In times of great distress, it might come down to a point when we need to flee. We might live to see such a time where we need to take flight because our lives are in danger. Jesus actually backs this up in Matthew 10, 23. He says this, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There may come a time, and I know there's debate on this. I understand debate on the timing of the tribulation and all that. I understand. But there may come a time in our lives when fleeing is appropriate. 
And maybe it's not during the Great Tribulation. Maybe it's simply during persecution that arises within our own country. There may come a time when we need to be ready to flee, to hide, to find shelter, and that's okay. Now, let's not swing so far to the other way, okay? Don't go doomsday on me. Don't set up a bomb shelter in, the back, in your backyard. Don't go living your life as if this is the one thing you should focus on. And there are Christians who do that. They live their lives as if we should focus on the end times and set up and be ready. It doesn't hurt to have a plan. It doesn't hurt to be prepared. But we don't live our life detailing the exit plan. Should we see the tribulation, we should be ready. But we should not be paranoid. Be ready, but don't be paranoid. After all, Jesus told us this would happen. Whether our generation or future Christian generations see this, Jesus told us it would happen. We may live to see this. We may not live to see this. I have no idea. But don't get distracted from the ultimate plan. And the ultimate plan, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, is make disciples. Don't get distracted by the events that are to come that we forget to make disciples. Don't let the future scare you from proclaiming the truth that Jesus is Lord. Stick to the plan and make disciples. Okay, that's the event that sparks the great tribulation. Here's your second point, the period of the great tribulation. So we talked about what sparks it. Now we're going to talk about the period of it. Look with me at verse 19. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In these two short verses, Jesus declares the great tribulation. This is spoken of here in Mark 13, in Matthew 24 and in great detail in the book of Revelation. Now, something I want to point out. The great tribulation is slightly different than the tribulation. Let me explain that. The tribulation is what we say when we're referring to the seven-year period, and you may have heard about this, the seven-year period where the Antichrist comes to power and he rules and reigns. The great tribulation is the last three and a half years. That's when persecution rises. That's when all the atrocities take place and things get really, really bad. So just know that there's a difference there. Jesus is telling us here about the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. There will be great turmoil. The verse says, as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, by the way, that word tribulation is the word thlipsis in the Greek, and it means trouble that inflicts distress, oppression, or affliction. It's a word that can describe inward distress when you are in pain, when you are in emotional turmoil. It can also describe outward distress like we see from what Jesus is describing here. The way Jesus uses this here, it's the ultimate pain of humanity. It is the greatest oppression against Christians and, not don't forget, the nation of Israel. All throughout history, Christians and Jews have been persecuted. They've experienced great tribulation, true, but not like this. This is the greatest and most extensive period of tribulation the world will ever see. Sin will run rampant. Mankind will be at its absolute 
worst. It's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. The book of Revelation speaks of horrible persecution, of devastating natural disasters, and rampant sin and wickedness. The entire world will feel the effects of the Great Tribulation. If you think of all the atrocious acts that have ever happened in history, take the Indonesian mass killings in 1965 through 66, the 1971 Bangladesh genocide, the Cambodian genocide, the 1984 Sikh genocide, the Guatemalan genocide, the East Timor genocide. Jesus says the Great Tribulation is going to be worse. All the movies that we see about a dystopian period, all the stories that we read about a dystopian period, they try to capture a horrendous, oppressive, world-dominating government, but they don't even come close to what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. Let's ask ourselves a question. Why in the world would God allow such horrendous evil? Why? I mean, if it's going to be that bad, why does he even allow it? Let's not forget something. God does not do things unintentionally. The tribulation has a purpose. I would actually propose to you that the tribulation has two purposes two purposes. Number one, to judge the unbelieving, and number two, to save the believing. And this goes for the nation of Israel as well as the nations as a whole. There's two purposes going on, judging the unbelieving and saving the believing. John MacArthur says this, the tribulation has two purposes for Israel, judge the rebels, save the believing. Two purposes for the nations, judge and save. The purpose behind the great tribulation is to both judge and save. And you might think, judgment I get. If it's going to be so bad, I can see how it's God's judgment. Absolutely. But how is this saving the believing? Especially if they're the ones being persecuted, if they're the ones dying for their faith, how in the world is this saving the believing? What is meant there is not necessarily saving their lives, but weeding out the false believers from the good, from the true. The great tribulation will weed out those who have a claim to Christ versus those who really know Christ. Believers, and we're going to get to this in the next couple of verses, believers in Jesus Christ are going to endure to the end. That's how, that's how the believing are saved. And as we read all this and as we study this and as you think about this, you might be asking yourself, where's the mercy of God in all this? Keep reading, verse 20. Jesus says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Even in all of the atrocious acts that are happening, there is grace. What does it mean that the Lord cut short the days? It means that God has to step into mankind, so, or God has to step into the situation so that mankind does not destroy himself. Now, what that looks like, we're not exactly sure, but somehow God's going to intervene. Perhaps it simply means that God is not going to allow the great tribulation to last beyond that three and a half years. There's an end date. Maybe that's what it means. Somehow, though, we don't know, God is going to step in. The ultimate pain and suffering that will happen on a global level will be stopped perhaps at his return, 
Perhaps Jesus is alluding to his return here. Perhaps he's alluding to something else, but somehow it's going to stop. We're not exactly sure. But note the reason. Why did God shorten the days of the great tribulation? It's due to the elect. You see that term in the verse? The elect. What does that mean? Well, that raises a whole other issue. Who are the elect? The word means to be selected or chosen. And this is a reference to believers. It's a reference to Christians. There's a whole doctrine in the Bible that's called the doctrine of election. And this is spelled out if you want to look it up later. It's spelled out in Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9 and elsewhere. Well, Wayne Grudem defines the doctrine of election like this. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. In other words, God chooses who will believe. He chooses them before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 tells us. Those who come to Christ are the elect that Jesus is speaking of here in Mark 13. They have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. Now let me ask, does that bother you? Now some of you may disagree with me on this, and that's okay too. We can disagree on this. But does it bother you to think that God selects, God chooses those who will save him? Which, what does that infer? That he does not choose others. That's what it infers. Does that bother you? If that bothers you, I want you to think of this. Look at Romans 3, 10 through 12 with me. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now Paul is quoting here from both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And the point that Paul is trying to make there is that no one in and of themselves, no one in and of ourselves comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Without God intervening, none of us would be saved. Election is actually God's mercy. The wonder is not that God saves some and rejects others. The wonder is that he saves anyone at all. There are none who deserve his salvation. And if you're still struggling with this idea, if you're still thinking to yourself, that sounds so unfair of God to do that, then listen to Romans 9, 14, and 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We should be thankful for our salvation. Election is the merciful hand of God saving some who would otherwise be condemned to hell as everyone else. But getting back to our passage in Mark, God cuts the days of the great tribulation short for the sake of his elect, none of whom would survive if he didn't do it. In other words, no one would survive. Humanity would destroy itself during the great tribulation if God did not step in. What do we do with this truth? What do we do with it? Simply this. Though the great tribulation is coming, and with it great oppression and persecution beyond anything this planet has ever seen, God 
is still in control. Though sin runs rampant and God's people are greatly maltreated, God is still in control. The great tribulation is within the plans of God and within the hands of God. He has planned it for his purpose and he determines when it's over. So my brothers and my sisters, though our hearts may quake with fright at what is to come, fear not. God is in complete and total control even over the worst event in human history. So this means that no whatever happens, no matter what happens, God has you in his hands. Whatever happens, God has your children in his hands. He is in complete and total control. My friends, even if you and I should see the worst of the worst, God will not abandon us. He is in control. Stand firm in your faith no matter what comes. And that's true, not just in the great tribulation, but today, here, and now. No matter what you're facing, God is still in control. You know, there's an old Petra song. How many Petra fans out there? Like, like two. Awesome. There's an old Petra song that talks about how the world wants to destroy Christians. And part of the lyrics go like this. Bring on the lions and heat up the fire. It's not enough to stop this man's desire. Stay strong. Come what may, God is in control. The last thing I want to look at from our passage this morning is this. The deception within the great tribulation. The deception within the great tribulation. Jesus continues in verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead you astray, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus mentioned this earlier in Mark 13, by the way. In verse 5, he said, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. I told you a few weeks ago when I preached on that to, don't, to not be led astray by anyone who claims to be the Christ. False Christs, by the way, are a sign that the tribulation's coming, but false Christs and false prophets will also continue to arise within the great tribulation as it's playing out. And just to be clear on this, a false Christ is someone who's claiming to be Jesus. And we've seen this as many examples even in our own day and age. A few weeks ago, I mentioned David Koresh. But there's many other examples of people due to either great delusion or mental disorders or even satanic influence, they claim to be Jesus. And Jesus is warning us here in Mark 13, 20 through 23, don't listen to any claims. Don't listen to anybody who comes to you and says, the Christ is here. The Christ is there. Anyone who says that, we're not to listen to them. Now, a couple questions. First, why? Why would Jesus warn us about this? And why would he warn us twice within the same chapter? Well, first, Jesus says here in Mark 
13, 21 through 23, that they're going to be very convincing. They're going to be very convincing. He says they're going to perform signs and wonders. They're going to dazzle people. How are they going to do that? I don't know. Possibly through the power of Satan, possibly through just some sort of trick. They're going to dazzle people. They're going to be very convincing. So Jesus is telling them, don't be duped. Don't be led astray. And secondly, he tells us here, they're going to be so convincing that if it were possible for the elect, if it were possible for those who believe in Jesus to be deceived, they would be deceived. The comforting thing is, that's not possible. It's not possible for those who are truly saved to be deceived. But then why does Christ even warn us? Why is he even warning us then? Let's use our imagination for a minute. You picture yourself within this period. You're hiding. You're trying to just stay alive. You're trying to keep your family safe. It's dangerous. Everywhere we go, it's dangerous. You're tired. You're weary. You're emotionally drained all the time. People will be desperate for the Messiah. We will be desperate for the Messiah. So desperate to see an end to the tyranny that one word of the Christ is here will be tempting. It will be tempting. So my warning to you and my warning to myself is this. If, my friends, we live to see such a period don't be deceived. If someone tries to convince you the Christ is here, the Christ is there, don't be deceived. No matter how tempting it may be, no matter how desperate you may feel. When Jesus does return, it will be unmistakable. But we'll talk about that next week. What is Jesus' word to us here in the text? He tells us to be on guard. And by the way, that's the same phrase that's used twice in the previous verses. It means to see or perceive, but it also means to be aware. To be aware. Jesus says he's told us all things beforehand, so we have no reason to not be aware. He's explained what's coming. We have no excuse. So church, be on guard. Be watchful. How do we do that? First, let me give you a few don'ts. Don't be caught off guard. If these events happen in our lifetime, be ready. As I said before, be ready to stand firm in your faith. Don't waver in what you believe. Don't deny Christ. Don't stop loving and serving people. Don't stop proclaiming the gospel. The coming of the Great Tribulation does not mean we give up on the Great Commission. Our mission as a church, our mission as the people of God is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That doesn't stop until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. Those are some don'ts. Here are some do's. Do keep praying. Do keep praying for the gospel to make an impact in all parts of the world. Do be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, taking the gospel into your own sphere of influence. Do immerse yourself in truth so that you don't even come close to being deceived by a false Christ. Keep reading. Keep studying. 
keep coming to church. Keep investing in the relationships in your church and in your small group. Keep growing so that you can spot false teaching a mile away. I told you at the start of this sermon, the difference between the Bible and the many other stories that are set in a dystopian time is that the Bible does The Bible does not present a human being or a group of humans as the heroes who fight against the oppressive government. Rather, the Bible presents our true Savior as the only way of salvation and who will one day right every wrong and ultimately defeat sin and evil. How do we see people responding in our passage to the Great Tribulation? From the passage, we see people fleeing We see people in such great persecution that humanity would die out if God did not step in. And we see people so desperate for a Savior that they are willing to believe in anything, even if it's false. How should we respond to the Great Tribulation? Actually, let's take a step back. How should we respond to the small, in comparison, tribulations in our everyday lives? And we all face those. Some of you are facing them right now. We all face personal ridicule, shame, health concerns, financial concerns, relational conflicts, you name it. How should we face our tribulations? We remember the tribulation faced by our Savior. We remember that he faced the crowd spitting on him, beating on him, stripping him, scourging him, crucifying him. We remember that no matter what tribulation you and I face in our life, he took the greatest blow. Because our Savior faced the great tribulation of the wrath of God, we no longer need to fear, despite what may happen in our lives. He took the ultimate sting out of any tribulation you and I could face so that no matter what, we will never be abandoned by God. He is always with us, even to the end of the age. And by looking to him, we can confidently face whatever comes our way, knowing that he's already paid the ultimate price. So come what may, church, For beyond this life is reward beyond our imagination. So be on your guard. Stay faithful. Your Savior, the hero, has already faced the worst of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for you are fully in control. We admit, Lord, the words you spoke to your disciples here in Mark 13 are scary. We don't know when these things might be, and we hate to think that they may happen in our lifetime. However, no matter what, you are in control. You hold the future. You hold those who are truly yours in your hands. Let us not forget what you called us to do. You've called us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us to have a fresh passion to share the gospel this week. Help us be faithful to declare your truth 
with those we come into contact with. And thank you. Thank you that no matter what, you are in control. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. And we say all this in your awesome name. And all God's people said,